0: Good morning. Good to see everybody. I have to apologize for my lying to you. It's not spring. It's winter. (laughs) I'm so thankful for Caleb's righteous perspective on that because that wasn't mine this morning. I don't know about you. I, I didn't think that way. I have to admit. So, as you know, we finished up Jonah, and I, I hope you enjoyed the book as much as I did. What a thrill it was to go through all the twists and turns and see what the Lord would have for us to learn out of that passage. I've been asked a number of times where we're going to go in our next uh, book, and my answer has been I have no idea yet. I don't know. I really couldn't decide. And I know it's going to be somewhere in the New Testament, and it's going to be in the Bible, so I know that for sure. I looked at my calendar, and I noticed that Easter was uh, three to four weeks off, and so I didn't really want to uh, begin a book and then have a a stop and be kind of interrupted uh, and then get back to the book again. So I thought maybe we'd do something a little different. There's been a a number of crucial decisions that we make as relates to our spiritual life. Certainly the first decision is that we were drawn by the grace of God to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and for Him to be the Lord of our life. So everything has to begin a legitimate Christian walk, a legitimate Christian destiny, to placing our faith alone in Christ alone, apart from works, for His glory alone. And then the second most important decision is what church we attend Makes a big difference on whether we are under solid teaching that's leading us to a greater understanding of who Jesus is and who God is, or to a church that's sort of ignoring that and focusing on a lot of other things other than the power of God's word. We have to pick a church that upholds the word as our supreme authority. Those two decisions then lay the groundwork for a third decision, a really choice that almost never gets any attention. It's pretty much ignored, and that's the version of the Bible that we choose. There have been a few people in our church over the years, I've taught this a couple times on a Thursday night, but probably other than that, I bet most of us have never really thought about or been taught about how to choose a Bible, and that's what we want to focus on here for the next few weeks may sound a little dry and academic, but I don't think it's going to be. I Every time that I've taught this, there's been a common request. They say, you've got to teach this on a Sunday morning because this is so valuable, so helpful, things I never knew, things that I never understood. And so I think it's going to be kind of fascinating for you, and I think you're going to see your spiritual life grow. grow. And, And I think that's just an area that we've never focused on. But think about it. The Bible that you've chosen, the Bible that you own, The Bible that you hold in your hand is either a good version or it's not. And how would you know? In my research, there's 60 versions of the Bible out there. How do you choose which one? In most of the conversations that I've been privy to, I'll hear somebody ask about, well, which version would you recommend? Typically, they go to a friend or somebody that they trust. And sadly, here's what I hear. I chose this one because it's the easiest to read. Wrong answer. That's not a good answer. And it's sad that we aren't more prepared as disciples of Christ to help people get the right Bible in their hands so that they're actually hearing God's Word taught. Some of the versions, that is not the case. And so we're going to walk through and learn what a good Bible translation is, what it's based on, so that we can know and we can help others. So we're going to take a short break from the normal verse-by-verse study and examine these different philosophies. And I think it's going to be enlightening, and I think it's going to be informative for you, and I think what you're going to see is alarming. It's going to be very shocking. Let me show you what I mean. Psalm or 32, verses 1 through 2, reads this way. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. This is a good translation, very faithful to the original languages, to the original Hebrew. And still it's readable to the English reader. So it's very, very literal, very, very, Delicate, precise translation of the original words. And it's translated in a way that we can read it as, as English readers. If it was straight Hebrew, we wouldn't be able to do that. Now I want you to compare that with this newer version. Count yourself lucky. How happy you must be. You get a fresh start. Your, st- your slates wiped clean. Count yourself lucky. God holds nothing against you, and you're holding nothing back from him. I would think you would agree that these two versions are quite different. And yet, this particular version of the Bible, if you can call it that, is in the hands of over 20 million people. 20 million people have that last version... And they think they're hearing God's word, and they're not. That is tragic. That is a satanic strategy. People don't know it. And the reason they have that version is somebody told them it's the easiest one to read. And you know they're right. It is the easiest of all the versions to read. It is also the less accurate the least accurate of all the translations, and it's tragic, very tragic. Before we begin, I want to mention three things. First of all, my goal in this few-week series is not to recommend one version over another. The truth is that there is no one single Bible That is the most accurate in every single part of the Bible. As you know, when I go go through the teaching, I'll bring out sometimes the King James, sometimes the NIV, sometimes the ESV. They all have strengths and weaknesses uh, in their various translations in different parts of the Bible. But I think that what's going to be clear to you is there are some that we should stay away from, some that we should not have, some that we should not be reading, at least on a regular basis, if we're going to be serious about God's Word. I also want to make sure you know that I'm not here to bash certain versions. I found that believers tend to develop sort of a fierce loyalty to the version that they're used to, the version that they have uh, adopted as their own. So it becomes very sensitive, very personal. So I want you to know my, my goal here is, is, is not to bash any particular version. So I would ask you to please be quick to listen and slow to anger as we go through this, because there may be times where I'm hitting on your particular version, but wait until I unfold it. Give me the, Uh, the opportunity to unfold because it may sound a little harsh at times. But um, so, so just so you know, I know this can be sensitive for people. Thirdly, my hope is, is that we develop a a deeper appreciation of God's word and how faithful God has been in the right versions to preserve his very precious word. So I just wanted to lay those sort of thoughts and, 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 and let you know what my intentions are here So, it's not a matter of preference, for the most part, some of the versions are. It's a matter of fidelity to the original words of God. As you know, the elders here and those that follow the elders are very concerned to make sure that we're looking at the original languages as much as we can, as much as we understand. None of us are experts in it, but we have tools And so our job then is to explain God's word according to those languages. Some of the Bible versions do that very well. Some of them don't. That second version is not God's word. And yet 20 million people have that version and they're reading it on a daily basis. That's their quote study Bible or devotional Bible. In the world of translation, there are basically two theories of translation. The first philosophy is what we call essential literal translation, or we might call it a word-for-word translation. Let me say, first of all, what this does not mean. I referred to it a minute ago. It does not mean that any particular translation is exactly word-for-word in the Hebrew, in the Greek, or in the Aramaic. We, it would be incomprehensible for, them, for, for us to take every single word in the exact same order that it is to understand. That's why it's called essential literal. So in this particular philosophy of translation, though, they are trying to get to the actual words that God breathed in the original manuscripts as close as possible so the English reader can actually have God's word. And they try to get it as close as possible and still keep it understandable and readable to us. Sometimes in your versions, you'll have italics. And that italics will indicate those are English words dropped in there for comprehension. So good Bibles will kind of identify that and help us understand. Oh, this is in parentheses. That's not in the original, but it's there to smooth it out so that we can understand what it's saying in the English. That's okay as long as we make that distinction. The aim, then, is to be as close as possible to the author's own words. The goal of this, then, in the word-for-word translation, is to translate what the author said. What the author said. The Central Literal Translation, then, seeks to retain the exact translation of figurative language. All the stylistic features and the quirks of the author are reproduced just as the author expressed them. Again, in other words, the the translation of this philosophy is to make it as close to the inspired word as possible. The idea then is to refrain from changing anything unless it's absolutely necessary to make it understandable in the English. The advantage of this, of the essential literal translation, is that they're the most accurate. And they minimize the insertion of the translator's interpretation into the passage. So it eliminates as much as possible the eisegesis, the insertion of the outside influence of a translator. The disadvantage to these particular translations is that they're rated higher in reading level. And they're more difficult to read, more difficult to understand. And it, the reason is it, is it upholds the language that's sometimes archaic to us. There are terms and, and expressions that we don't understand today. But a central literal translation will keep those there because that's what God laid down in the original manuscripts the second translation philosophy is what's called the dynamic equivalent translation. By the way, this is a little more different for me. It's not preaching as much as it is teaching. More instruction. The more common name of this is thought-for-thought translation. And on the far extreme of this particular theory, you may have heard the, idea, the, the term paraphrased. There's paraphrase Bibles. Those are thought-for-thought Bibles. This philosophy then seeks to translate translate the thoughts or meaning of the original author. So the goal here in the thought-to-thought translations is to translate what the author means. So the essential literal tries to get at what God says. The dynamic equivalent translations try to get at what the author means. What did he mean to say? So the priority then of these translations is interpretation, not translation alone. The advantage of these particular Bibles or these versions is that they're rated at a lower reading level, therefore they're easier to read, they're easier to understand. Some of the children's Bibles, which are valuable and good, they've they're, they're been reduced way down to a first or second grade level because that's the level of their comprehension. The disadvantage though of these these translation philosophies, these versions, is that they're less accurate to the original manuscripts and in some cases, they're misleading what God is saying because the translators have a priority of making sure they explain what the author means. Now, here's the thing, is that translator correct in getting at the meaning So that's important to us. I don't know about you. I don't want to get an interpretation of the scriptures. I want to get the scriptures so I can interpret it. Same with you. All Bibles fall into sort of a translation continuum. All Bibles fall somewhere on a continuum from word-for-word translation and a thought-for-thought translation. So every single Bible has some thought-for-thought, and every single Bible has some word-for-word. The most common literal translations are the NASB, Which I preach from, the King James Version, the ESV, the LSB is the new um, um, Legacy Standard Bible that uh, Master Seminary has been commissioned to do. It just came out. Uh, It's not come out with the new study notes in it, but it's going to be a great translation, a very accurate translation. The Amplified is in the in the in that section of literal. New King James and the Holman Christian Study Bible. There's some others, but those are the main ones that I've seen in our church. Then there's kind of the middle of the road, and it's the NIV translation. It does a very good job of balancing literal, word by word, with some thought commentary to help us understand it. It's a very good balance. I used that Bible for 20 some years of my early Christian life. It's a good Bible. But that's kind of in the middle. That's actually the the most conservative in the beginning of the dynamic equivalent translation philosophy. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. And then we have the thought-for-thought versions, which are uh, the New Living Translation, the NLT, the TNIV, that's today's New International Version. That's different than the NIV. The CEV, which is the Contemporary English Version. And then the Message, The message was the last one that I put up on the first slide. So in your notes are listed 16 versions and how they're categorized and the dates that they were created. So if you have a different version, you can look in there and see kind of where it falls in the two different translation theories. So here's the debate. Should translators translate the original words or... Would it be more helpful for the reader to explain what the authors meant? So every one of your Bibles, depending on what version you have, that's going to be the aim. The aim is more so accuracy, or the aim is to help you understand what God actually said. Both of these ideas fall in two distinct eras of Bible translation. There was an era of the word-for-word translations, and then there was an era from, of thought-for-thought translations. In the years 1520 to 1950, each translation was built upon previous translations. And the key, the key philosophy was continuity with the previous translations. So from 1520 to 1950, the new translations that came about were built upon the previous ones. So we could say this. There was, there was a continuous revision as new manuscripts came about, as they understood new languages, as, as sometimes the English language or the, the, the receptive language changed. There was one continuous revision For 430 years, a new translation would come out. It would would revise what was there. It kept looking back at the previous scholarship, building on that previous scholarship. The preface, though, of those revisions, the key word is revised. So if you go to the beginning of the Bible, open any Bible, if you want to know how to look at one in a bookstore or whatever, you go to the preface, and if it says revised... It's gonna be a word for word translation. It's gonna be more of the essential literal translation. Then, from 1950 to present, continuity with the past has for the most part been ignored for the more fresh, innovative, novel approach. So there's a shift around 19, in the 1950s. And starting at that point, the new translations were more disconnected from the past. So we have a set of Bibles for 430 years. They build off of each other. They, they look back and they refined it. And then about 1950, suddenly that was broken. There was, a, there was a connection broken. And then they move forward and they're thinking, what can be fresh and what can be new and what would invite the contemporary reader to get into his Bible? By the way, music has followed that same pattern. In the 1950s, 1970s, in that era, suddenly the idea of the old hymns were cast aside, and it was all about the new, all about the fresh, all about the innovative. So there's been a consistent shift in music, same thing with churches. We don't want to do it the old way, the old stuffy, crusty way. We want to have a new church. I remember talking with another pastor. Everything needs to be new. We need to throw everything out. Oh, really? Well, that was the, that was sort of the attitude with Bible translations as well. So the newer versions, the key word is new, if you'd read the preface. Revised in the essential literal, new in the dynamic equivalent translations, in the preface. Now, how did this come about? Well, the dynamic equivalent philosophy... Of Bible translation was popularized by, a, by a, a guy by the name of Eugene Nida. Eugene Nida. By the way, in my logo software, we have um, we have a, a document that helps us understand the meaning of a particular passage in a text, and it's called Nida. So this this guy had had some input on that. Now this is important. Listen to this real carefully. NIDA believed that the reaction of the reader to the translated text is more important than translation of the words and phrases themselves. You catch that? NIDA believed that the reaction of the reader to the translated text is more important than the translation of the words and phrases themselves. This is very, very important for us to understand. That has been the shift in Bible translation. The focus then shifted from concern for translation to a preoccupation of how the reader responds to the Bible. Exactly where our culture has gone. It's all about the person, all about the target audience not about God's Word as much. They don't completely discount that, but the priority is how will the reader respond to this? My last sermon in this, we're going to deal with Bibles that have gender-neutral language. They've taken 23,000 masculine pronouns and changed them so that women in particular can feel comfortable with the Bible. That's man-centered. So the translations then have moved from God-centeredness To man centeredness. And the intention is that we want people to be interested in the Bible. Therefore, we're gonna have to make it interesting. We're gonna have to make it common. We're gonna have to make it colloquial. It's gonna have to be down to earth, the language that people use. That's the idea of the different translation philosophy is now man is the consumer. Really important to know. So the movement then from accuracy to the response of the reader means that it is less accurate, but it's easier to read. I put it on your handouts to show a graphic. Translation philosophy up through the mid-20th century considered the Bible as the priority and the reader second. So the fidelity to the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic, the original words of the manuscripts, was the priority at that point, and the response to the reader, whether they could understand it or not, was secondary. Translation philosophy then from the mid-20th century through today considered the response of the reader first, and accuracy and fidelity to the original languages in the Bible second. So here's what's happened. The newer thought for thought translations, and I'm talking more about the extreme, not not the NIV. The NIV is right in the middle. But in the extreme translations, in the extreme newer translations, accuracy has taken a back seat to make sure that the reader is comfortable. Friends, that is a that is a massive shift. And it's a significant shift. we got to know that. When you pick up a Bible, you have to know whether the purpose of that Bible is to show you what the authors actually wrote, what they actually said, or what the translators would like you to know they thought and said. Huge difference. The first two versions that adopted the new philosophy was the Living, the Living Bible translation and the NIV They were two versions that adopted that philosophy. Both were created in 1978. The NIV became extremely popular overnight. There were a couple of good reasons. They had taken some representatives from all the different denominations and scholarly uh, groups and brought them together, and they kind of became the spokesman for that particular Bible. So it took off just like that. I told you that was my first Bible when I got out of college, In the early 80s, my my dad bought me that Bible, and he bought me an NIV, and I used it for 20-some years, 20, 25 years. There's a number of cultural forces that paved the way for the success of the dynamic equivalent Bibles in the 70s. At that point, here's why that became successful. At that point, there was no alternative to the King James Version. That was the only version we had. How many of you have the King James Version? By the way, good okay, good. There was no alternative. And, and here's what was beginning to happen. The, because the language is in Old English, it became kind of out of step with culture. It's not necessarily bad, but that's what happened. And so a little bit of the older language, which, which by the way, is harder, became the idea that maybe we ought to move it forward to more contemporary language. I've got a King James Bible in there that's that thick and that big. We need to be thankful. And you couldn't read it. I mean, it's the original, like King James Version. You, you can't read it. So we ought to be thankful that sometimes new translations do come along as long as they're faithful to the original languages. So there was this sort of anti-traditional spirit appealing to the novel and the modern. Maybe you remember that in the 50s and 60s and 70s. That was kind of the movement in our culture. And so people were wanting to do away with formality and preference for common, everyday language. And this is what's happened to churches. Instead of it being majestic, our churches have become casual. Instead of pulpits, we have couches. Instead of pastors that, that wield the appropriate authority, we have coaches. The translations then follow culture, unfortunately. So what used to be a majestic high, you know, high-sounding, majestic, strong church has now become casual. You look at many of the websites, it'll say this, come as you are. Now, this isn't a sermon on dress, but that's what's happened. We don't want to preach the word anymore. We want to suggest, and we just want to have conversation. So the Bible translations were sort of following that trend and by the way, it followed the same pattern as the seeker sensitive movement, the, the seeker sensitive church movement, the, the emergent church. In other words, we don't want to have anything to do with the old. Everything has to be new because nothing was right about the old. Isn't that an arrogant statement? That's why we still believe in singing hymns, because it connects us to a history. And so should our Bibles. Along with those issues, there was a dramatic drop in reading ability. In the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, education was beginning to falter, and people couldn't read as well. You stick people today with the King James Version, and many people don't have the skill to read it. There was a loss in ability to appreciate and recognize literary excellence. If there's one thing you can say about the King James Version, it, it is it is, as far as literary literature goes, it is excellent. And because of that, it's hard to read. But our ability to read has Dropped dramatically. So, all these forces then brought a consumer oriented, sort of a Gallup poll mentality that led, led, led translators and publishers to give readers what they want. So, the, 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 the Bible student, the Christian, became a target audience. And here's what they found those Bibles that are easier to read, those Bibles that are cooler, sell more. They do. So unfortunately, in some of the publishers, the Bible, it's become more about making money than fidelity to the original languages. So the trend then established a dangerous attitude that the reader is equal to or elevated above the original authors. Now listen, listen to me. They won't say that, and you'll not see that in print. You will not read that in the preface up front. But that's exactly what has happened with the translation philosophy. Now, all these reasons don't by themselves make dynamic equivalent translations illegitimate. I use a number of them in my study. I use the NIV. I use the King James. I use, I use a number of them. And by the way, I think you should too. I think you ought to look get a parallel Bible where you can see the different translations. It's very helpful. But they do explain why they've been so widely accepted. And it keeps us from assuming that their popularity proves that they're superior, because that's not true. And I want to consider translation from a couple different angles, so we can kind of relate to this. First, from the reader's point of view. Let's say you bought a valuable painting from a famous artist. Sarah Luganville here today? Yeah. Let's say you bought one from Sarah Luganbill. She's a famous local artist. And you got it home, and you were so proud of it, and you looked at the back, and it had Jim Butler on there. (laughs) You would probably feel cheated, and you would probably feel defrauded. In the same way, how would we feel if we discovered that much of our Bible included the words of translators rather than God's actual word? Some of you may be holding Bibles today that that's the case. I want to look at it from God's point of view. Let's say that you wrote a tribute to a lifetime friend who passed away. But you were nervous. You didn't think you could do a good job presenting it, so you asked a friend to help read it. And when he got up to read your tribute, you were shocked. You you were shocked because your carefully crafted message Hours of laboring over specific words that identified that person the best that you possibly could was changed and put into your reader's own words. He took the liberty to rewrite it. And you asked him why. And he said, well, I didn't think the audience could relate to what you were saying, and I think it was a little hard for them to understand, so I rewrote it for you. And you noticed he changed a number of things. You wrote that your friend was an exemplary model of Christ. And your friend wrote, he's a pretty good religious guy. He felt like people could relate to that. You wrote, he's a superb expositor of the Bible. Your friend wrote, he's kind of a good speaker. Missed the whole point. You wrote that he's a sturdy rock. And your friend said, well, he's a pretty tough dude. You wrote that your friend was a pillar of faith, and your friend wrote he has very strong opinions about religious things. You wrote that his friendship ran like deep, still waters, and your friend wrote he's a friend that sticks like glue. The question is, who is your friend most concerned about? Your eulogy or how the audience would receive the eulogy? Did your audience hear what you wrote? They did not. They heard something completely different. You see, the goal of translators is not to reinterpret what God's author said. The goal of translators is to get it as close as possible to what the authors actually wrote. They have no business explaining what the text means. That's commentating. That's what commentators do. And the challenge for us is if we're not careful with the right Bible, we won't know which is which. So in biblical translation, everything depends on whether the actual words of the author have been accurately preserved. I've had an opportunity to be involved a little bit in a legal system, and I'm telling you what, every single word matters. On contracts and and bylaws and those kind of things. I mean, a lawyer will look at that and look at every single word how many of you have written a recipe down wrong? Makes all the difference of the world in an outcome. That's exactly the way the Bible is. Exactly. Now, before we get too unbalanced, uh, let me say this because some of you have some of the some of those other versions that we've been talking about. I do believe that the thought for thought translations do have a purpose, and in some cases, they're very, very helpful because they help interpret difficult phrases. I've used the NIV a number of times where I'll be looking at the original, I'll look at the NASB, I'll look at the King James, I'll look at the, the New King James, and then I look at the, at the NIV and, it's go, and I go, ah, yeah, that's exactly what it's saying. So, the, so there are places for that. So please understand, we, we can't throw them completely out. They're helpful because they help attempt to convey the meaning of the original. However, that's the problem. In some cases, they interpret rather than translate. Now, I want to finish by looking at some of the examples, and we'll do this over the next few weeks, because I want you to see the difference so you can understand what I'm talking about here. And so, what what really makes a faithful translation? So let's look at the NASB in Psalm 32, 1 and 2. It reads very clearly, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Very good, faithful translation. Not easy to read. It's at 11th grade level. King James is at a 12th. NASB is at um, 11th grade level. By the way, that's why it's not as popular. read an article the other day. It's not a real popular Bible at all because of that reason is that the public generally can't read at 11th grade level. Let's look at the King James Version then, very similar. I won't read it all. There's only two very slight changes. And notice it's because of the the older English language, it translates impute as imputeth. If we were sitting down with a 21-year-old or a 19-year-old and they weren't familiar with the Bible... That would seem a little odd to them, imputeth. We don't talk like that. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying we don't say imputeth today. Not that it's wrong, and that is a majestic language. It also changes the word deceit to no guile. That's okay. It means basically the same thing, but the word guile is a harder word. Very, less people know what guile means or no guile than deceit. And again, this is at a 12th grade level. Now let's look at the NIV. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Good, good, good. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. Very faithful translation. For the most part, the only slight variation is that it changes the word impute to not count against. Now, if we had time to evaluate this, we would notice they don't say the exact same thing. Imputing guilt is not the exact same thing as not counting against us. Slightly different, not a huge difference, but they've chosen to explain impute. So that's a little bit of the dynamic translation in there. They're trying to help us understand what impute means. The NIV is a little easier to read. It's around an eighth grade level. Now, I want to share something really important with you. Make sure you write this down or make sure you check your Bible. I would recommend the NIV if if you have the original translation of 1984. You're all going to be looking up the front of your Bibles. When was your your Bible published, okay? You, You want to go back to 1984. If you have the 2011, you don't want it. And here's why. It aims at gender neutrality. Most people don't know that. They just pick up an NIV version. They think it's the same. It's not. They've changed the masculine pronouns to make them neuter because of the gender wars. Okay, so make sure yours says 1984, or if you don't, if you have the eleven, just keep that in mind. That sometimes where it says he, it's going to say they, and where it says man, it's going to say people. Okay, so that changes. Now let's look at the message. That's the most dynamic of all the translations. We looked at this. Count yourself lucky. Lucky? Are you serious? Lucky? Sorry. <laughs> How happy you must be to get a fresh start. Your slates wiped clean. Count yourself lucky. God holds nothing against you and you're holding nothing back from him. Now I want to make three important observations here. Number one, notice that essential redemptive language or terms are eliminated. Essential key original words of redemption are eliminated. I think you're going to find this comparison interesting. Notice, first of all, the word blessed, it's been dropped and translated to mean lucky and happy. Now listen, happy and lucky are human conditions, not godly conditions. That has removed God from the equation. God blesses God doesn't bring luck and simply happiness to us. He blesses us because of the blood of Christ. God's removed here, friends. Transgression is forgiven, has been dropped and replaced by a fresh start, and that your slate's been wiped clean. God's sovereignty and his providence is removed. Transgression and forgiven are essential salvific words. Take the word sin, for example. Totally missing from the message. Can you imagine removing the word sin from a passage? And again, in verse 2, it says, blessed. It's been replaced in the message by count yourself lucky. And notice the word impute iniquity which means guilt and damnation, is completely changed by the phrase, God holds nothing against you. The reason God won't hold anything against you is because he won't impute iniquity to your account. So it talks about why instead of how. And the word deceit is reinterpreted to mean holding nothing against him. That's okay, but it's not a really good definition of deceit. Notice that there is a legitimate loss of fidelity to the original redemptive language. Friends, that's so important. We don't want a Bible where the explanation and definition of salvation is removed. That's tragic. People can't get to God through that. It's not going to happen because it's not even close to his original word. Blessed and sin and iniquity and deceit are theological words that carry essential meaning. And let me ask you this. We'll talk about this, I think, next week. How would you do a word search? How would you possibly look up lucky? That's the way we interpret passages. We look up the phrases and we chase those phrases and we chase those words. Lucky isn't even in the Bible. And a slate being clean isn't even in the Bible. You can't do a search. So you're really handicapped to just get what the authors think that passage means. Friends, that is, that is tragic. You see? You feel that? doesn't even feel like the Bible, because it's not. But 20 million people are reading it, trying to find God in that. The second difference is the loss of majestic language. It's pretty clear it totally loses the royal quality. It feels less godly because it's common. As I mentioned, I think that the King James Version and the New King James Version and the NASB, I think, so does the ESV, actually. But I think, especially the King James, because it's in the Older English, it keeps it lofty. You, you read, you read those, those strong versions and you feel like you're standing before majesty. You read the message and some of the others, it's like Christ has taken off his, ca- his crown, put some bubble gum in and put a cap on So it keeps the dignity and the quality and the majestic nature of God before us. The language becomes colloquial and ordinary, and it loses its commanding and authoritative status in the message. Third observation is as the reading level decreases, so does the accuracy. One of the fallacies of modern translation, I'm going to deal with fallacies next week, Is that the Bible should be easy to read so that it's clearer and more understandable? So let me ask you a question Was the message clearer and more understandable? It was easier to read, but it was less accurate. So when we go with the easy, we're giving up fidelity and accuracy to the original words. It's not as clear. The exact words do matter. And the further we move away from the literal translation of the original words, the less clear the Bible becomes and the more, listen, the more God disappears. This is, um, I really wanted to teach on this because it brings our attention to the need to have a right Bible that cares about God's actual sacred word. Let's look at another example New American Standard, Psalm 73.7. This is an interesting passage. The eyes bulge from fatness, and the imaginations of their heart run riot. I wanted to show you this for two reasons. First of all, it shows the difficulty in translating into English. But secondly, it demonstrates the subtle change from the most literal to the dynamic. Now, here's the story. Asaph was a Levite, and he was a choir director in the temple. And he had become filled with doubt as he compared the live, his life with the lives of the worldly. Then having repented, he describes what the wicked are like. Let's look at the King James Version. Their eyes stand out with fatness, and they have more than heart could wish. Very similar. Take particular notice that they keep the imagery, the original imagery of eyes and heart. So if you were going to do a study on eyes, you could chase eyes. If you are going to do a study on heart, you could chase heart. By the way, when I read this, I pictured cartoon characters. Whoa, whoa, you know how to did with the eyes? Sorry, but this is my life. So I just, I just remember the eyes bulging. But, but here's the image. You've got these eyes bulging out with fatness, looking and lusting. After the things of the world. That's real imaginative. And God put it there for a reason. Now notice the NIV. Pretty close. It says, From their callous hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. So what differences do you notice? There's a little more interpretation. Not bad. A little more interpretation. The translators want us to understand what Asaph meant. So it's a little more contemporary. Again, that could be helpful if the translators gets, get it right. And also notice the imagery has changed, though. They keep the word hearts, but they change I or eyes to mind. Is that important? I think it can be because what he's saying is the eyes see. He's not talking about the mind thinking, but the eyes see. Notice also that the two ideas are reversed in the essential literal translations. The eyes are mentioned first and then the heart. And the NIV reverses that and puts the heart first and then changes eyes to mind, which is second. Now, the NIV does that. I don't know why. But the question would be, why change the order? If God laid it down the other way, why change the order? Let's look at the New Living Translation. Again, this is, this is fun. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. Some people have the NLT, New Living Translation, very popular. They tried to explain what Asaph meant in, in colloquial everyday language. It's lost its majestic strength because the original imagery is lost. And by the way, who are fat cats? And how would you chase, if you wanted to know what the Bible said about fat cats, how would you do a study on fat cats? Does it mean a chubby kitty? (laughs) This is an important point. Listen, when we use colloquial language, it's only going to make sense to a particular generation. Okay? So... We don't want to stick colloquial uh, expressions in there because it may not seem the thing uh, seem the same way later. We've seen that with the word "gay." How those words change over time. By the way, the original doesn't say that they had everything that they could wish for. The idea is they had an insatiable desire to satisfy themselves at any cost. That's the point of that. The message. Look at this one. This is fun. Pampered and overfed decked out with silk bows of silliness. What? We laugh, but there's 20 million people that are reading that. All original imagery is eliminated, the eyes, the heart, the mind, which are the idol factories of of the soul, that's all gone. The original says nothing about food, or how we dress they have taken interpretive license to make it appealing to us instead of saying what it actually says now let me ask you this question which has the most strength the original words do not the interpretation we get off of God's word we lose its power we lose its authority. It's tragic. But they thought that that would be the most relatable to readers because the reader is now the most important thing. So, what can we learn from all this? What's been the result of this shift in translation philosophy, especially in the extreme? I'm talking more about the extreme. I want to make sure you understand. I think the NIV works. So even though that's in that category, it's the most traditional in the first. So I want to make sure you understand that. I don't want you to go throw away your NIV Bibles because they're good. So what's been the the change? What's what's happened? Well, first of all, we can see that we have lost a common Bible for English-speaking Christians. 60 versions there's no longer a consistent universal biblical language. And here's where we see this we see it in Iwana. Why well, memorize that in the King James Version? Why well, memorize that in the NIV Version? Why well, memorize that in the ESV Version? We've all experienced that. How about following the pulpit? If we have 25 different Bibles out here, I imagine some of the things that I've pointed out this morning, you're going, that didn't even end my text. That can be a challenge. People ask me what Bible to get. I said, well, if it's important that you follow what the pulpit is so that you can see what I'm showing you, then get the NASB. Otherwise, the King James, New King James, NIV, ESV, all those are good Bibles. You think about a men's group. If we have, I have men in my small men's group. There's three or four different Bibles. And it's interesting, although we understand why there's differences, there's differences. So in any group, you can have people reading different things. So many people, 20 million people are hearing pampered and overfed and silk bows. Millions won't. And by the way, that's divisive. That divides our understanding. That, that keeps us from seeing the exact same thing. That, ha, that has. I'm not saying it's divisive. Some is, by the way, if you're a King James only version person, you've divided off from the rest of the body. Because you think that's the only superior authorized version there is. So it can be divisive. Secondly, we also see that readers in general have left, have, have left lost, I'm sorry, have less confidence, are less confident in what the original text actually says. There's confusion of clarity with all the different versions. And I think it creates doubt in, in the Bible's authenticity and its authority. I've sat in conversations, I've sat in Bible studies where people are going, well, mine says this. Is that the same thing? Well, yours says this. Is that the same thing? I don't get it. Especially with new believers. It can be real challenging. I can't imagine a person in the small group, one having the King James Version and the other having the message, having any kind of real communication. It'd be tough. Finally, I want to finish with what I consider the greatest tragedy of all. And I think the shift in Bible translation is a cunning devious attempt of the devil to remove God's word. Whether we see it or not, friends, this is a spiritual, an issue of spiritual warfare. We all know, don't we, that there's been countless attacks on the Bible, right? Right? Attacks on the Bible. Have we ever thought about an attack in the Bible? We're holding the very thing that is being attacked and we don't know it? We know two things about Satan in Genesis 3.1. I always go back to the beginning. Now, the serpent was more crafty, that means shrewd, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So here's what this tells us. Satan is more crafty than any created being. Far above us. The devil is sly. He's deceitful. He acts as an angel of light. He's deceiv- or de- uh, de- devious. So, what exactly does that look like? Notice the second half of that verse. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said? You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. These were the first words out of Satan's mouth. And he's attacking the Bible. He tried to lead Eve to a new interpretation of what God said. Just a slight variation of the word any in the wrong place. And that created the fall. Is it a big deal? Yes. Because we see that the changing of God's word, the reinterpretation of God's word led to the fall. Satan tried it again in the desert. In Matthew 4, you remember, Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tested by the devil. And Satan said, since you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Do You remember what he responded, how he responded? Look, 4. He said to him, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every single individual word that was recorded is God breathed. Every word, every single word is sacred. Jesus went on to say in 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is accomplished. smallest letter there is is a single Hebrew letter. A jot or a tittle or a stroke is a dot on an eye. And man's going to come along and give his commentary to it? the very last warning in the bible is revelation 22:18 and 19 i testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them god will add to him the plagues which are written in the book and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy god will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book we've all heard the famous quote from the german philosopher frederick Nietzsche, who said this, the devil is in the details. And that's true, he is. But so is God. Because in the details is where God is found. So with the current trend of translation, the word of God is literally disappearing. And we need to know it. You need to know it. Your friends need to know it. So what's the solution? Get a good Bible. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this morning. We're thankful, Lord, that you have preserved your word. We thank you that there are translators still today who care more about your precious sacred word than how we feel about your word Thank you for what you've shown us this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen.